You're listening to the Small Business Talk podcast with Kathy Smith. Small Business Talk is a podcast for business owners and entrepreneurs who want a better way to run their businesses without spending years doing it the hard way. Small Business Talk is hosted by Kathy Smith, who has run the same marketing agency for more than 17 years and helped hundreds of business owners achieve their marketing goals. Welcome to Small Business Talk, episode 158. Today, my guest is Phil Fraser. Welcome, Phil. Hi, nice to see you, Cathy. And we're going to be talking about the sales processes and learnings from it. So what are we going to learn, Phil? Well, I sold my business back in 2018. And as with many people, selling a business is something you tend to only do once. So it's quite a steep learning curve. Various learnings from that, I think. Absolutely. That sounds like a really good idea. And we seem to be having a little bit of a theme of that at the moment. We had David Jennings from Systemology on a little while ago, and he's talking about making sure that your business is ready to sell, whether you want to sell it or not. And our guest from a few weeks ago also was talking about scaling businesses. So I think we're onto something at the moment. So where do you think we should start if we're going to be looking at the sales process? The point you just said, actually, is absolutely right. You should be ready to sell the business or the business should be ready for sale at every point in the business journey, even if you don't feel like you want to sell. Just as an aside, I'm now doing some investments in other businesses. You guys call it Shark Tank. We call it Dragon's Den over here. But that type of thing. I'm not on the telly. Don't worry. I'm not on the telly. (laughs) And we, myself and a couple of other investors, have invested in a small business, which is growing. And already they have been approached about a sale or a purchase. Doesn't look like we're going to do it. But this is the point. You have to be ready to sell the business or the business has to be ready to sell at every point in your journey. Absolutely. And then not only does it become more valuable, but it also frees you up. If you're not that key person dependent and you do have other people that can take over the role, then like you say, if you've got that opportunity that you need to do a side project or would like to do a side project, you can do that as well. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there are a number of lessons I learned since selling. I've sort of looked into this a a lot. And, you know, once you've done it once, you look at how other people do it and other processes. But probably the first lesson to learn as a business owner in terms of preparation for sale is to make yourself redundant from the business. So the business has to be able to run without you because when another company buys a business, they don't want you. They're not bothered about you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. We want your business. You know, we want your clients, we want your customers, we want your profit, we want your systems and processes, et cetera, et cetera. They don't want you. So the first thing you have to do is work a system whereby you're not necessary for the business. Now, if you're in startup mode, obviously that's quite difficult to do and that's inherently impossible. But as you develop as a business, that should be the aim. And the ultimate test, and this was something a, a business broker told me, he called it the holiday test. Yes. So can, you go on, can you go on vacation for two weeks and the business still run itself? And not take that, your phone. So, and that doesn't, and sitting by the pool with your laptop and your mobile is cheating. You yes. can't do that. <laughs> So if the business runs when you're on holiday without too much stress from you, then that's the first stage or that's the first step in having a business that's ready for sale. 
Absolutely. And I know lots of people that can't even go away for a few hours or a weekend. So yes, definitely need to be able to set it up so that it can run without you. And as we say, even if you don't want to sell, that makes life so much easier. Oh, that's fantastic. Anybody who's listening to this or watching this who has their own business and just sit down for a second and go, wouldn't it be great if your business ran without you doing anything? And you still got paid. Yeah. And you still get paid. You go, yeah, I'll have some of that. So, So even if you're not selling, even if you're not selling, it's a great aim. The next question, obviously, is, well, how do you do that? And one of the things I talk to my clients about a lot is delegation. Now, delegation sounds easy in very simple terms you give some of your tasks to somebody else to do. Yeah, that's great. I like that. But there's lots and lots of stuff around it. And that's where you start. That's where you start developing this business that runs without you. As business owners, we have certain traits. And one of them, one of the negative ones, I'd say possibly one of the negative ones is they don't like letting go. No, absolutely my not. Business. I'm the best at doing this. I'm not letting any, nobody else can do this to the level I can do it. So actually it sort of runs against the grain for business owners to do that. And until you do it and you do it properly, and I talk about this a lot, that it's a basis of telling somebody, this is the task, this is the level it needs to be done to, this is the end game, these are the budgets, whatever it might be. And that bit that people miss is the person you're delegating to, have they been trained to do it? It's completely unfair and it will end in tears and end in failure if you haven't trained that person to do that task. Once you've delegated it, explained it, trained them to do it, offered yourself there as feedback while they're doing it and giving feedback while they're doing it. And then the end process is they end up doing the task and they do it to the right level and the right quality and the right timeline, the right budget and all that sort of things. Then you're in a great position. It's hard work to do it properly and to do it right. It is. And to realize that they may not do it exactly your way, but if they're coming in on those other constraints, budget, time, and getting the job done to the standard, then if it's not done your way, then that may be still okay. I used to tell my team, this is the task, you know, whatever it might be. And I described it as we're at A and we need to get to B. I'd go this route, but if you go that route, I don't care. As long as you get to B. Yes. Now, again, again, as a business owner and the traits of a business owner, you know, you digging your nails in your skin, going, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. But you've got to let them do it. (laughs) You do. You do. And sometimes the way that you've been doing it may not have been the most effective, the most efficient, or the most productive. Shock horror. Yes, this actually happens. No. (laughs) The way I did it wasn't exactly the only way that it can be done. Sorry. (laughs) Other ways available. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, as I say, it's part of being a business owner. You know, this is the only way it can be done. It's my way. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes we need to realize that that is not the case. And for the betterment of the business, sometimes it is better that we don't do some of these tasks. Absolutely. And again, as your business grows and you learn to delegate, one of the things that tends to happen with business owners, and I see this a lot, is when you start a business and you're the only person, you do everything. And as yes. you take on staff and as you delegate, you sort of slice layers off you and you give tasks to other people and you end up with the stuff you're left with. Yes. And sometimes that stuff is stuff you shouldn't be doing. Exactly. I ended up, by the time we sold our business, we had, I think it was 12 or 13 staff. Mm-hmm. Quite, you know, decent sized business. And yep. 
maybe two or three years out from actually selling, I was the one still ordering the toilet roll and the coffee and things like that. And the best way to look at it, and sometimes it's things that just get left behind and you end up doing them. And sometimes they're things that as a business owner, you like doing. Yes. You shouldn't be doing them, but you like doing them. So you keep hold of them. The best way to look at it is to look at the task and then say, okay, I pay myself whatever salary you pay yourself or an hourly rate or whatever it might be, and then turn it around and go, would I pay somebody else that salary to do that job? Let's say you're a $100,000, $100,000 pound a year salary CEO yeah. and you're ordering the coffee. That's very expensive and then, coffee. And you're the one. And I, you know, I was still doing the invoicing. And it's not being disrespectful to other people who are doing tasks at a lower salary grade, but you wouldn't pay a bookkeeper, £100,000, $100,000 a year to do the invoicing. No. So you why, why are you doing it? Exactly. Exactly. In my other business, we do web design and we're saying that to people all the time is we're saying you wouldn't pay someone for three months to learn how to build a website. You wouldn't pay someone this astronomical amount of money to build a subpar website. So why are you paying yourself to do that big learning curve and you get to the end and you haven't done a good job? It's far easier just to pay me to do it properly in the first twice. The thing is, and I know lots of people who are guilty of this, it's great to fiddle around on WordPress building your own website. It's lots of fun. <laughs> yes, it's lots of fun. Fantastic. But you know, you're a CEO, you're on a web designer, and your website will be crap. Indeed. And you're probably not even a creative either, so it's really going yeah. to be crap. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, it's going to be crap. Design-wise, it's going to be crap. The SEO is going to be crap. But you enjoy it and it's your business, so you're going to do it. Yes. So have yourself a little side project to build something for the local soccer club or something like that, not your main business. Yes, absolutely. I, I, again, there's lots of jobs out there nowadays that are easy to do badly. Yes. And web design is one of those. Absolutely. We fix a lot of people's mistakes. They've had a little go or they've got their cousin or their uncle or their sister or their brother or whatever to do it. And then they go, it's just not working. Okay, we can do that. Yeah, I'm actually guilty of that. (laughs) See, I can read you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we're thinking about getting our business ready for sale, whether we want to sell it or not. So we've worked out that we need to delegate some tasks and we need to stop doing tasks that we shouldn't be doing. What else should we be doing to streamline our business? Okay, the next thing is, there's two or three things, so, and they're not in any particular order. So the, the next one is to get all your paperwork and your contracts in place and sorted out. Now, if you've grown the business from zero and, and as you go along and you've maybe got a friend who's a client or a guy down the road who's a client and it's on a handshake and a drink in the pub, and yeah, he always pays 40000 a year and we do his work for him, you know, whatever it might be. That doesn't cut it when you sell a business. When you sell a business, everything needs to be in place. All the contracts need to be in place, terms and conditions, all that sort of stuff. And that's client contracts as well as supplier contracts and things like staff contracts and stuff like that. You yes. need to be in a situation where old school, you have a box with a pile of paper in and you go, there you go. That's all our sales contracts. That's all our purchase contracts. That's all our clients. That's all our customers. Nowadays, it would be in Dropbox or something like that. So those sort of things need to be tidied up. 
Yes. And, you know, it's good. As with a lot of this stuff in preparation for selling, it's just good housekeeping, just having those sorts of things. And we fell slightly foul of this when we sold our business because we didn't have those sorts of things in place. Some of them were in place and some of them weren't. And again, staff contracts is a great one. When you start up as a startup, you might agree somebody a salary, you go, this is your salary and this is what you do, you know, whatever it is. You might not have a written contract. And then further down the line, you start bringing in contracts and then you've got different versions of contracts and you've got people whose contracts have got terms and conditions in that don't apply anymore. And as the last 18 months has been fantastic in terms of things like work from home and stuff like that, but that probably not in somebody's contract. No, in a lot of them it wouldn't be. The business gets sold and then Dave, who works for you, says to the new owners, oh, well, you know, Phil said I could do work from home Monday and Friday. And the new guy goes, well, contract says you're in the office nine to five, five days a week. They're only minor things, but it's that doing the grown-up business things and contracts is one of those things. Absolutely. And especially with the way things have changed. So not only working from home, but they may have been a part-time person. And now that they're working from home, they can do full-time or they might've been part-time and now they're doing casual. And the original contract they signed may not be relevant to the work that they're doing now. Yeah. And again, things like bonuses are always a bone of contention. Oh, it's not in the contract, but she gets $1,000 a month as a bonus or a year or whatever it might be. And I'm not exactly sure what the rules are in Australia, but in the UK, everything that you have in in, in terms of employment law in the business that's being purchased basically transfers to the new business. And that's plus and minus. So the new business goes, well, your contract says you don't get a bonus. You go, oh, well, verbally, we agreed it. And the new business goes, sorry, it's not not here anymore. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it's with clients, it's the same thing. So if you've got a client who hasn't got a written contract and prices and terms and conditions and, oh, Dave always pays on 90 days, even though his contract says it's 30. So when Dave to the new company goes, oh, I'm not, he always gave me 90 days. Credit control of the new company goes, "Uh -uh, (laughs) you've got to pay on 30. Yep. 29 would be good. Absolutely. Even better. So yeah, so all of that contractual stuff, get your ducks in a row. Absolutely. Because yes, it it will turn around to bite you and it can be very expensive if you haven't got that sorted. The next preparation for sale, this is one we really fell foul on, was actually on data and recording stuff and numbers and stuff like that. So again, as a small company, as you grow, and my client base is up to sort of 5 million turnover. So sort of medium-sized businesses, you tend to record data that you need for the business. Yes. It might be sales, it might be trends, there's all sorts of stuff, but you tend to record data and collect data and analyze data that is useful for the business that you want. What you sometimes don't do is collect data in the format and the analysis that the industry, the larger industry, values businesses on. Yes. Often some of it will be the same and you'll use it, but other times it won't be. So what you need to do is you need to be aware of how or what data the industry uses to evaluate a business. When we were being purchased, the purchaser said, oh, have you got this analysis and that analysis? It was, I can't remember which one. It was two or three that are sort of industry standards, but we didn't collect because it wasn't of any commercial use to us. Yes. So what I had to do, and again, This is another thing, obviously, during a sale, you don't tell the team what's going on in case it doesn't happen. We had the data in raw form, but we didn't have it in the form or the analysis that they needed. So I had to go back three years, putting together records, putting together records and analysis of things we didn't use, but because they wanted them analyzed that way, then I could go, well, here's, here's that analysis. 
bloody hell, that was hard. I bet it was. Because <laughs> you, you start asking the team, oh, have you got this analysis for 2016? And quite obviously they go, A, we never collect it, and B, why would you want it? Yes, so, and, and know, that was quite a few years ago. I've got work to do today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was scrabbling through raw data, trying to put these analyses together because we didn't analyze it away. So again, it's being aware of the sort of data analysis that the industry uses. And for you, you might, as a business owner, you might just collect it yourself, put it in a file. You don't have to share it with the team. It's just, it sits there, but it's ready when a potential purchaser might ask for it. Absolutely. And it's going to save you a lot of heartache and time scrabbling through old filing cabinets and trying to find hard drives that have been deleted and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other key thing I think is this is probably more relevant as you get closer to a sale is actually being aware of market values in your industry and your sector. So what prices are people paying for businesses in your sector like your size? Now, I'll give you an example. Somebody comes to you and says, I'll give you a million dollars for your business. Woohoo! Now, a million dollars is fantastic. Thank you. That's brilliant. However, you don't know whether that's a really good offer or a really bad offer. Yes. Unless you know what's happening in the market. And within that, it's also understanding how businesses are being valued. Standard valuation is usually a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So if you know the industry is working on three times EBITDA, and your EBITDA is a million pounds, you know your business is worth three million pounds. Yes. And that also works backwards. So if you want to sell for a million pounds or a million dollars, often the price people want for their business will be number of shareholders times one million. Okay. It's always, it's always the price they want. Because yep. everybody yep. wants to walk away with a million dollars or a okay. million pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you work this forward or backwards. So you either sit there and go, we want, if there's three shareholders and they all own a third of the business, uh, we want $3 million or £3 million for our business. Fine. Working backwards, if you understand what the market multiples are, you can then get your business to the point where it is worth $3 million. If we're using simple figures, if it's three times EBITDA and your EBITDA is a million and you all want a million, yes, you've got businesses worth three million. But if your business is currently on half a million, you know you need to double your business to be able to walk away with a million dollars each. Yes. So knowing and understanding the market rates, so how businesses in your sector are being valued and what the average price is, then allows you to know if somebody comes with an offer, a, whether it's a good offer or not. But the other way around is if you're proactively saying, I want to walk away with a million, you know what you've got to do to get your business to be the value of what you want when you walk away. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing where people fall foul of is that they don't get paid what they're worth because they're trying to write it down as tax write-offs and that sort of thing. But of course, when they try to sell it, if you're actually not drawing a salary or a wage, then you don't really have a business. Correct. And that goes all the way back to being able to run the business without you. Yes, you want to run a business and make a profit, but you also want to take some money out of it. That's the whole reason for doing it, is it not? To actually give yourself a salary. This works all the way back to evaluation of the business value. So as a business purchaser, I cut, let's say it's three shareholders and they all work nine to five, three days, five days a week. When I look at the business as a purchaser, I go, well, hang on, these guys have got, this is three full-time jobs 
that are being paid, you know, whatever they're being paid, 100000 a year, 50000 a year, whatever it might be, I've got to replace them. Yes. So actually yes. that figure comes back off the value of the business. Yes. Um, yes. You know, often business sellers go, no, I, I don't do anything. I don't do anything. And then when you dig into it, you know they're there Monday to Friday, they're working at weekends. In that instance, you know as a purchaser you're going to need to replace them, and obviously that's a cost. Yes. That will write down the value of the business. Absolutely. So by replacing yourself so you're no longer in that position, then you don't need to be replaced and that increases the value of the business. Absolutely works. It absolutely works the other way. So if you're running the business but not doing anything and taking out, again, round figures, 100000 a year, then the purchaser looks at it and goes, fantastic, that 100000 a year goes straight on the bottom line. Yes. It works the other way. What you will find is there's lots of financial shenanigans about what gets added back and what's get added on. But one of the things as you get closer to potentially selling, you might not, you usually wouldn't tell the team or anything like that, but you might tell your accountant because what you don't want your accountant to do is to be sort of proactively trying to reduce your profit to save on what we call corporation tax. Yep. And you're thinking, oh, great, I saved a pound on corporate or a dollar on corporation tax. You don't want to do that because actually... You want to make it more profitable. Now, in the short term, yes, you might have to pay more corporation tax, but actually your business looks more valuable to a potential purchaser. So for every pound you save on your corporation tax, you're actually losing, taking a multiple of three, you're losing three pounds or three dollars on your sale. You know, you just have to make sure your financial tactics, shall we call them, are in line with what you're trying to do. Yes, definitely. So what would you say as a timeline for people if they are thinking that they would like to multiply up their business or they'd like to get ready to sell it? What's a reasonable timeline that they would need to get all their ducks in a row? Being realistic, the way things work, I'd say you need to be, to do it properly and to do it without rushing, I'd say a minimum six months to get everything tidied up and all that sort of thing. And, and again, we haven't mentioned this, but credit control and debt control. What you don't want as a purchaser, you don't want to look at a business and think, well, hang on a minute, they've got $100,000 worth of bills that haven't been paid for six months. So how realistic is this that the money's coming in? Because that's a risk to the new purchaser. So you want to be tightening up on getting the money in. Most businesses have got slow payers who they know are slow payers and they'll often say, well, I know he's going to pay, but he's always slow. That doesn't look good trying to sell a business. You need to tidy those sort of things up. And one of the best tests, I think, in terms of is your business ready to sell is to sit down as a business owner and go, okay, what questions would I ask if I was buying a business? And what would I look at? What would the red lights be? And then turn that back on your own business and go, okay, yeah, somebody who's not paid for six months, that's a red flag. Yes, um, Absolutely. The company hasn't got a lot of cash in the bank. Why is that? Now, it might be that you've paid a big dividend or it might be that you don't need a lot of cash flow. But again, you need to look at your business as a purchaser and go, okay, where are the alarm bells ringing? And then if you're doing this in preparation to sell, and although you're not selling yet, it gives you time to put those things right. Yes. So, so maybe you won't pay yourself a dividend for six months just to make the bank balance look a bit stronger. Yes. Um, and you'll have a quiet word with that guy who doesn't pay on time and go, look, we're tightening things up. You're going to have to start paying or at least paying on time. And maybe you put some prices up. Maybe you stop a product line that you know is a bit of a lost leader. There's ways and means of polishing your business so that when you take it for sale, the best parallel is when you sell your house. Yes. You walk in your house and there's a bit of a scratch on the wall and that door 
got a big scratch down the middle or there's a stain in the middle of the carpet or the, the front lawn hasn't been mowed for six months. When you live there, it's like, ah, I can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, I can't see it. I can't see it. No, um, no. <laughs> so when you're selling your house, a lick of paint, a bit of tidying, a bit of chuck the garbage out from the backyard, it's the same sort of thing. So you make your business sale ready with yes. those little bits of tidying. And those things, I would say, give yourself six months. Perfect. So do you have any final notes for our audience if they're looking at selling their business or making sure that it can run without them? I think the key is the start point is get to a point where you can run the business without you. Perfect. That's going to be the key because otherwise you haven't got a business to sell. You haven't got any value in the business. You take it to the extreme. Let's say you're a self-employed painter and decorator and there's nothing wrong with painter and decorators and we all need them. And at the moment, they're really rare because everybody's working on their homes. That guy hasn't really got a business to sell. No. He's got a job. So as a business owner, you want to avoid being that painter decorator that when he goes on holiday, going back to my example, nothing gets painted. No. It just stops for those two, four weeks that he takes off and starts again when he comes back. Correct. So nobody's going to buy that as a business because there isn't a business. He is the business. Yes. That's the first thing. And then it's, as a summary, it's make yourself redundant, get all your paperwork sorted out and get all that tidied up, understand market valuations, understand market data collection, and then do the DIY on the house that we talked about and tidy up the bits around the corner. And then the next stage is how do you actually go about selling the business? That's a completely different podcast. That is indeed. (laughs) We might have to have you back at some point for that. So if people would like to know more about you, Phil, how do they find you? Okay, best place to find me is my website, which is philfraser.co.uk. Don't go to philfraser.com because that's a medieval reenactment costume company. If you see lots of people with sort of bows and arrows and looking a bit like Robin Hood, you're at the wrong place. So it's philfraser.co.uk. All my contact details are there. I'm on LinkedIn most days, so feel free to connect with me. And anybody who just wants a chat about any aspect of running their own business, that's what I do. My, I'm a business sounding board. So I help business owners just to be better business owners. We have a phrase over here, it's lonely at the top. I don't know if you use the same phrase. My role is to avoid you being lonely at the top. As you've heard, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So whatever problem or whatever issue you've got, I've probably had the same problem or issue. So happy to talk to anybody. Fantastic. So being happy to talk to anybody, you happy to answer five final questions? Go on, hit me with it, Kathy. <laughs> okay, here we go. What is the best advice you have been given to by a mentor? Actually, we had, this is quite funny, actually, we had a consultant come into the business, again, towards the end of the process, the business journey. And he basically did a 360 with the whole team and me and whatever we thought where the business should go and all that sort of thing. And I was told to basically keep my nose out of the business. Ah, very good. (laughs) Very good. Just the team were basically saying, just let us get on with the job. Don't bother us. Just leave us. If it's a problem, we'll let you know. I think that was probably the best advice. Excellent. What is the biggest help you've received since starting your business? We ran our business for five years from home, just myself and my wife and a few freelancers. When one of our key freelancers basically said, look, I'm getting a full-time job, we got to that sort of stick or twist moment. Like, do we sort of carry on doing this or do we do we like take an office and get staff and stuff like that? And a consultant basically said to me, just go for it. Whilst taking on your first member of staff is probably the scariest thing you'll ever do as a business owner. Oh, yes. Uh, 
the advice he gave, it sounds very cold and heartless and it's not meant to be. Because obviously when you take somebody on, you go, oh, oh my God, I've got to pay them 30,000, 50,000, whatever. That's a lot of money. But what he said was, actually, you're only exposed for a month's salary, at least in the first two years. So if it doesn't work, let's say you're paying somebody 24,000 for two years in the UK, usually you're on a month's notice either way. If I pay somebody 24,000, I'm not committing to 24,000 pounds, $24,000. I'm actually committing to 2,000 pounds or $2,000. It just makes it that less scary. Yeah. As I say, it's not being cold and heartless and saying, you know, I can sack you anytime I want. That's not the point. The point was what looks and feels like the scariest step in the world, because you then start thinking, what is your own business? If it doesn't work, that's fine whatever the problem is. When you take staff on, you start thinking, well, I'm responsible for their rent and their mortgage. And oh my God, their kids won't have any food on the table. It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and you really overplay the whole thing. To take that scary thing off, to say, look, you're only exposed for a month's salary. Yeah. That was really, really good advice at the time. Excellent. What is the one thing that you have to do every day? You're non-negotiable. As a business owner or now? Either. I think as a business owner, particularly when you've got a team, is turning up with a big smile and a positive attitude because that sets the agenda for the rest of the team. You know, if you walk into the office pissing down with rain and you've had a bad night and there's loads of things in your head, you can't carry that into the team. I think your non-negotiable is you go in with a smile on your face and a positive attitude because if you don't, that sort of knackers the business for the day. Absolutely. I've been listening to Zig Ziglar and he said, we've got to stop complaining about the weather. We can't do anything about it, but we can do something about how we react to it. And I think that's very true. What is your favorite business book and why? Oh, this is an easy one. My favorite business book is Seven Habits of Successful Business People by Stephen Covey. I think um, that is our most popular one. It's funny thing was, I can't remember when I first read it, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was. So I read it, put it down. And then for what, I can't remember why, I sort of picked it back up again and read it again. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, I do that. Oh, I do that as well. And actually, I realized I'd actually started doing stuff from it without realizing I'd done it. But there's so, so much in there. And I've read it four or five times. I've got it as an audio book. I've listened to it a couple of times. There's just so much in that. And from my point of view, I the start with the end in mind is just the message from that book. And I say this to my clients. I start with, okay, what does perfect look like in a year? Yes. And then we go from there because then that sets everything. That sets the strategy. It sets where you're going, what you're doing, all that sort of stuff. But it's time management stuff. I love that. I've now got a sort of a bastardized version of sort of urgent versus important and that, that I use. Sharpen the saw, I'm, I'm always listening to podcasts and reading books and stuff. There's just so much in that book. I might pick it up again tomorrow. Sounds good. And what do you wish you had known when you started out? Something I've actually only learned recently, which is the power of building the business by acquisition. Okay. We grew our whole business up pretty much organically. But since we sold, I've been quite interested in M&A, sort of the basic buy and build model. So if you buy five $1 million businesses, roll them together, you actually end up with, a, in theory, a seven, eight, nine $9 million business. Okay. Due to cost synergies, new markets, valuation models, the smaller a business, the lower the multiples, the bigger the business, the higher the multiples. So if you put... Yep five $1 million businesses together, which have each individually valued at, let's say, three times EBITDA. When you've got a $5 million business, it might be cumulatively the same business, but actually it's worth yes. more. Buy and build is probably, and also 
purchase models as well. How you know you don't have to go right. I'm buying this business for a million dollars. Here's a million dollars. There are ways and means of not doing it that way. So that sort of stuff. And in fact, when we sold our business, our major competitor was up for sale at the same time. And actually, our plan B was we were seriously looking at buying our major competitor anyway. But yeah, that would be the thing I think I probably wish I'd learned or knew more about when we started was buy and build. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And SBT audience, enjoy your journey. Don't forget to subscribe to Small Business Talk podcast and head on over to smallbusinesstalk.com.au forward slash downloads for all the show notes and links to this episode. Remember, to be great, you must start. Pick one tip from today's episode, take action and implement it. Let's meet again next week at the same time and place. Until then, take action. And SBT community, enjoy your journey.